This is COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Aaron Granillo. Governor Jay Inslee wants students back in the classroom. He announced new benchmarks that could allow hundreds of thousands of school children in front of teachers again. This is based on our new uh, data that has given us high confidence and shows that schools can successfully limit the transmission of COVID-19 when they have strong safe, uh, health and safety protocols in place in their schools. He says transmission rates will be tied to this phased-in approach with younger students coming back first. Most of the biggest counties in the Puget Sound region meet the targets to bring elementary students back to class. In groups of 15 or less, high school students would be the last to return under these recommendations. And the governor says the updates reflect the data, which suggests that in-person learning and remote learning are just about equally as safe. And the thing that is quite impressive is that they, they differ very, very little. That has been um, an important consideration because it indicates that there really is relatively small additional risk if you have good safety and health protocols. Those protocols include keeping six feet of distance between students and teachers, requiring masks, increasing cleaning, and upgrading the ventilation systems. The question is, what do teachers think of the plan? Shannon McCann is the president of the Federal Way Teachers Union. We'll do anything we can for our students, but that starts with going back to school when it's safe. And the Washington Education Association backs that statement. It says the governor never consulted with them before announcing his intention to get kids back into the classrooms. Association President Larry Delaney said first they need to know there's adequate PPE, upgraded ventilation, testing, and the rest. The state's organization of pediatricians says getting kids back into school will relax what it calls an alarming increase in mental health issues in children. All right, so is the timing right now to reopen schools? When you look at King County, for instance, we're seeing about 420 cases per 100,000 residents. You may remember the original guidance to reopen schools was a rate of about 75 cases per 100,000 people. It sounds like the governor's concerned that there are going to be there's going to be irreversible harm to kids unless they can get back in school soon. But, of course, this is going to raise questions. If it's safe to bring kids back into school with the, uh, the teachers, then what about restaurants? What about gyms? What about the other businesses that are still required to be closed because they have not, well, as they would say, have not been given a chance to prove they can operate safely? Yeah, you're right about that. We also heard from Superintendent uh, Chris Rakedall. He was on Kara uh, Radio's Dory Monson show last week, and he did acknowledge the fact that you know, students are obviously struggling with remote learning. Online learning is not successful for a lot of kids. It requires them to be very independent learners. So the opportunity is only really viable for older kids. And that is the main concern here, like you mentioned, David, is the irreparable harm. And I don't even think we can totally calculate it yet. There's been essentially now almost a full year of students not in classrooms and, you know, the students are, are disengaged. We heard from Rakedahl. Even his kids are struggling in school right now. And that is a guy who obviously is an educator himself, has the resources to educate his children, probably, I assume, has Internet and computers at home. You think about the students who are low income. You think about homeless students who live in shelters. What are they doing right now? I mean, there are so many issues. Kids in rural areas on native reservations who don't have remote access to the Internet you think about all the damage that has been done um, in the last year or so. And also, what about the older kids who are not included in this? Some of them are not going to be able to complete their senior years, and that means that they're going to have to put off college. And that's that's really tough. Those are, in fact, years that you you don't recover. So um, I I hope it goes well, but I, I predict that 
if they reopen schools, there will be even more pressure from businesses to let them reopen, too. Do we know what the teachers' unions are individually saying here? We, we, we do know that the school boards, individual districts, are going to make the final decision. These are just recommendations from the governor's office, but I, I don't really know yet. I don't, have a, I don't have a good sense of how the overall feeling is among teachers. Well, I don't know what the status of the research is into how the virus behaves in a school setting. Right. Uh, there was a, I believe it was a study in Australia where they indeed found that it was not the students who were transmitting to teachers. It was teachers who were transmitting among themselves mm. in the faculty room and other places where they gather. Now, if that's the case, that should be something you can work with because adults obviously are more likely to wear masks uh, reliably than than uh, kids are. And you can probably more safely govern, govern their interactions than you can between the teachers and the kids. But um, who wants to be the... <laughs> Who wants to be the guinea pig to try it first, right? Right, yeah. Disclose the teacher's lobby, I guess. That would help, huh? <laughs> Yeah. And as we look at uh, individual district plans, it looks like the Bellevue School District does plan to bring kindergartners through second graders back into the classroom by the end of January. And Seattle Public Schools could make that decision on a similar plan uh, as early as this week. And Inslee's new standards tell schools to reopen for all students when the number of cases in a specific region are fewer than 50 cases per 100,000 residents. Man, I don't, I don't see that happening until, who knows, fall of next year? Who really knows? Once we've all got the vaccine. Yeah. Let's break down now the latest on the COVID relief bill that is moving through Congress. It seems to be inching closer to approval. Dave, what is included now in this estimated about $908 billion? So far, what we're hearing is that there will be money for COVID testing and vaccine distribution, some relief to hospitals, which makes sense. The proposal would also reinstate the federal unemployment insurance supplement at the level of $300 per week. And it should include a direct payment to Americans, which would likely be closer to $600 as opposed to the $1,200 that the March package included. And it should also extend the eviction moratorium, which is a uh, a mixed blessing. Good for renters, but of course, landlords are getting worried that they themselves might be forced to sell properties if they can't make their mortgage payments. Yeah, here in Seattle, we saw Mayor Jenny Durkin just this week extend the city's eviction moratorium through March of 2021. I know you talked to Enrique Jevons. He is one of four landlords who is suing the state over these moratoriums. And he indicated that the larger problem is, you know, what does happen in March after these moratoriums expire? So if a tenant is is uh, out of work and rent is still due at the end of the moratorium, they're obliged to pay that back. Who, who's, you know, how many tenants out there are going to have a year's worth of savings that they can start paying this back or, or can be afford to pay it back? I mean, right. most people live paycheck to paycheck or maybe have a month or two savings uh, when the moratorium is over. They're not going to be any better position than they are now. So the reality is we're just kicking the can down the road. So, so what he's arguing here is that, you know, landlords aren't getting payments from renters. If they lose their property when March hits, then people are still going to get kicked out anyways, right? Right. And I specifically asked him that. I said, okay, so the law says you can't kick them out, but when the bank repossesses or should the bank repossess the home, can the bank kick them out? And the answer is, yes, they can. So if that's the case, what does this accomplish? Yeah, I think uh, with the with the mayor and sort of the the 
the idea behind this policy is renters, if they can, should still try to make the payments, of course, uh, or work with the landlords to be on sort of a, a payment plan if they can. But yeah, I mean, if you haven't paid rent for a whole year, let's say your rent is a thousand bucks a month, that's a good deal in Seattle. I don't think anything is close to that. But you're talking twelve thousand dollars at least. Yet you have to pay back if you haven't paid since March. Yep. And if somebody isn't able to pay the rent as it comes due, how are they going to make a lump payment like that? This week, the very first shots of the Pfizer vaccine were given to healthcare workers and nursing home residents across the country. And here in Washington, it's exciting. It's historic. Um, it's groundbreaking. That's Sheehan Allen, the COVID vaccine director for the Washington State Department of Health. It's just been really exciting to see all of the hard work of all of our partners, um, you know, local health jurisdictions, providers, tribal nations, um, the work that's gone in the last couple of months, finally, you know, coming alive. So I am excited about it. I think that it's going to bring hope and something for us to look forward to. And right now, the vaccines are going to those healthcare workers. Nursing home residents would be next in line. The vaccine's going to run out, you know, for this first week. I mean, we had such limited doses. And so it's going to be um, really, you know, difficult to to vaccinate um, both of those high-risk um, populations. We should probably note those two Alaskan healthcare workers uh, who had a severe allergic reaction after getting that Pfizer vaccine. One of the workers did not have a history of allergies and was still in the hospital as of last night. The physician who cared for her, Dr. Lindy Jones, is at Bartlett Regional Hospital in Juneau and described her symptoms. Feeling short of breath. She was not wheezy. Her heart rate was elevated um, and she had a uh, red flushed rash um, over her face and torso. During the whole time, uh, she was... She was still enthusiastic that she got the vaccine and the uh, benefits that it would re- that it would uh, give her in the future. All right. So this is the first allergic reaction that we've heard of in the United States. You remember last week, two British healthcare providers also had reactions. They're all doing OK, but this is a little concerning, is it not, Dave? I mean, somebody who's have who has no history of allergic reactions all of a sudden has one. Is it just well, a concerning one-off? that it's a new vaccine, but yeah. not surprising if you watch any television? You've seen a drug commercial, right? Mm-hmm. Half the drug commercial is all the horrible things that could happen to you, right? You could get rashes. You could uh, feel nauseous. Your left arm could fall off, you know, take it if, uh, only if it's prescribed by your doctor. So I'm I'm not surprised that there would be allergic reactions to a uh, a brand new vaccine. But what is encouraging is that at least uh, for most of them, they appear to be uh, recovering. So you have to, you always have to weigh the cost versus the benefit. Given how contagious this thing is and what can happen if you do have a pre-existing condition, I think most people will probably say it's worth taking it. Can you explain to us now that the Pfizer vaccine somehow has these surprise extra doses? What's yeah. that about? Well, this this story is interesting because what started coming up was that hospitals, once they mixed the the vials with the saline solution for the actual dose, they had extra left over, and they were throwing it out because Pfizer was saying there's only supposed to be five doses per vial. And so out of an abundance of caution, they said, okay, there must be a reason they're saying that. So even though we have extra here, we're just going to throw the extra out. Well, some people began questioning that because they said, well, okay, as long as we can get – apparently you have to have 0.3 milliliters of the concentrate hmm. um, to be able to, to make a, um, a potent dose. 
And so Pfizer came back and said, yes, uh, we want to make sure that you have at least enough for the five doses, but sometimes the bottles are overfilled. And so if there is enough left over to make a uh, a sixth or a seventh dose, use it. But if it's only partial, right, don't mix it with the dose on the next bottle to try and extend it. So in other words, if the if you can get... Six doses out of the same vial, yeah. do it. If you can get seven full doses out of the same vial, do it. But if it's only a partial dose, then you got to throw out the remaining. Yeah, don't waste that. That's a, that's a crucial resource right now. Don't waste yeah. that stuff. Uh, by the way, one more note for the week. The Moderna vaccine likely headed for approval, most likely tomorrow, Dave. All right. So good. We have two, and eventually we'll have three, and maybe... What, by April, you and I will get a shot? <laughs> yeah, right. I think I'm like 200 millionth in line or something yeah, like that. That's right. We'll be back with you next Thursday to discuss the latest coronavirus news. You can subscribe to this podcast, and you can also find our news coverage on MyNorthwest.com or listen live at 97.3 FM.